You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, this is Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to the podcast portion of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I have a fantastic guest today. And I know you guys are tired of hearing me say that each and every week. But when you have a guest who is fantastic, you just have to say this guy's fantastic. Scott Galloway, professor of digital branding and marketing at NYU Stern Graduate School of Business. I found this. I found some of the work of of Scott, Professor Galloway, uh, on YouTube, and he's done a number of really interesting videos. He does a weekly video, but but the most fascinating thing I saw of him was called the Four Horsemen of Technology: Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google. And he did this presentation at a conference. It was something like 90 slides in 15 minutes, and it was really just a tour de force discussion of what's going on in branding, in retail, in technology, and it was really just an amazing um, conversation. And so I saw this. I started doing some research. Uh, he's right here in NYU. He's you know 10 minutes from from uh, the Bloomberg Studios, and so I invited him to be on the show. And to my great uh, Surprise, he said yes. And so we had this conversation and he is one of the most fascinating, knowledgeable people when it comes to those areas, things like luxury brands and marketing and the intersection of your your physical stores with your online sites, with your social and mobile engagements. And it's really quite a fascinating um, conversation. We, we covered so many different things. It, it's really so interesting and amazing. And as you'll hear, at a certain point, it shifts from me, you know, doing the radio thing and asking questions and having him answer to just a real conversation about what is happening in the universe of, of technology and retail and branding and Amazon and Apple and Google and Facebook and Twitter and everything else. So. I, I really had a great time sitting and chatting with him. He's the sort of guy you would love to pull up next to um, in, a, in a bar, sit down and, and have a beer and just talk about what's going on. And that's pretty much what we did, a, a little cappuccino, and we were off to the races. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Scott Galloway of NYU. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Scott Galloway. He's a professor of 
Digital and Brands at NYU Stern. Is that the correct uh, title? Yeah, close enough. Professor close, of Marketing. Pro- professor of Marketing. Um, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Bert. So before we get started, you may not be well known to all of our listeners. Let me go through your very, very significant curricula, curriculum vitae. Uh, bachelor's from UCLA and then an MBA from Berkeley. Uh, currently clinical professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business. Author of the Digital IQ Index, a global ranking of prestige brands. We'll talk about that in a little mm-hmm. more detail. Named one of the world's 50 best business school professors. Founder of numerous firms, L2, Ren Envelope, and Profit. And named the World Economic Forum's Global Leaders of Tomorrow, which is a uh, 100 individuals under the age of 40 whose accomplishments have had an impact on the global level. You're also on the board or have served on the board of directors of Eddie Bauer, the New York Times, Gateway Computer, and Berkeley's uh, Haas School of Business. Yep. Did I skip anything or is that uh No, that's great. Thanks. So so let's talk a little bit about your background. First mm-hmm. of all, why would you leave sunny California for this mess over Yeah, it makes it makes no sense, right? That's <laughs> one of those things every time you're flying back into LAX and you look around and you get in your convertible, you think, why did I ever leave? Uh, I just always wanted to live in New York. You know what it's like. This is if you're a ton of energy. It's yeah. it's the center of the world. Sometimes, yeah, the helm of the bobsled, the tip of the spear, the greatest experiment. The density of culture, interesting people, is a great place to live. I love San Francisco. Did my graduate work out there. Started a bunch of internet companies, but it's a one industry town. It's tech. Mm-hmm. LA is a one industry town. It's entertainment. The thing, one of the great things about New York is the currencies of power and success here are are multiple. There's a lot of different ways to kind of get your groove on here, and just just love it here. Oh, sure, business, investing, theater, yep. publishing, television, yep. real estate is just huge here. Although yep. it seems to be huge where we look around the country. Yep. So you come to NYU as a professor. Um, what was uh, tell us a little bit about Red Envelope and Profit, two very different companies? Sure. So started out at Morgan Stanley, uh, only real job I ever had, and then uh, actually got kind of sick. And when you get sick at a young age, you reevaluate. You your force maturity is kind of forced on you, and decided I didn't know what I wanted to do, but knew I didn't want to be an investment banker. So did what anyone who is fairly ambitious and doesn't know what they want to do. I went back to graduate school, mm-hmm. and then. Got very inspired by a guy named David Ocker, who's considered the father of modern branding, uh, and started a company called Profit, a brand strategy firm focused on his principles. We grew that to about 400 people, really rewarding, uh, but then decided, didn't want to be in a services company. I've always decided or thought a services company is really a young man's business. You're kind of on your client's uh, schedule, and then was fortunate enough to get swept up in the internet era. Started Red Envelope, a multi-channel uh, e-commerce company. And then on the day of the IPO, said, this is great. I have some opportunities and some flexibilities with what I want to do with my life and decided to pursue this kind of lifelong passion or dream and teach and change my life, moved to New York, joined the faculty at NYU, and here we are. That's, that's a huge, huge set of changes in a very short period of time. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, but it's been a lot of fun. So, so you briefly were at Morgan Stanley, so yeah. you have some experience in the real world. How long have you been at NYU for? I joined the faculty at NYU in 2002, and it's been just—it's been 13 great years. Just feel exceptionally, exceptionally fortunate to to get to teach at such a fantastic university. It's been—it's—it's it's just been wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about the Digital IQ Index. This mm-hmm. is something uh, I believe you were involved in creating. Was it 2010? Is that right? Yeah, it's—it was really accidental. You can't get very far in academia without doing research. And my background was in e-commerce, so I thought. 
There's there are metrics for return on equity and uh, price earnings, car quality with JD Powers. How many people watch a program with Nielsen? But there really isn't a, a, a measure or a benchmark for how a brand is doing across its entire digital footprint. So architected an algorithm of 850 data points across site, digital marketing, social, and mobile, and then applied it against 100 brands and ranked them, thinking it would be a piece of academic research. Within about 48 hours of releasing it, heard from about 40 of the brands saying, who are you and why are you doing this? <laughs> and recognized there was a commercial opportunity, so asked the dean if we could spin out the IP and start a private enterprise called L2, and NYU was very generous with us and, and said, fine, as long as you're supportive of NYU. And uh, and that's it was really the birth of a, an accidental business. And now L2 works with everyone from P&G and Unilever to Coach, Tiffany, Nike, Samsung. So it's been a lot of fun. So you talk about looking at and evaluating a company across site, digital, social, mobile. Yeah. That's a pretty broad yet inclusive set of uh, of data points. What's the thinking behind that? Every place a consumer might come into contact with a brand? So all the touch points. So And every brand has different strengths and weaknesses. And regardless of how much capital you have, the cruel truth of capitalism and investing in digital is you have to pick your punches. So even a Home Depot or a Sephora uh, or a Vuitton, organizations you would think would have a ton of resources, have to pick their punches. And the issue is, you know, what lever are you going to pull? If you're really about increasing your percentage of sales online, you're going to be more focused on site. If you're about signaling innovation to a younger consumer, it's probably going to be around more around social. If you're trying to create a loyalty program that has tremendous, uh, uses digital as a connective tissue between your store and your site, that's more about a loyalty program on a mobile phone in the store. So we're trying to create a benchmark such that brands can track their strengths and weaknesses relative to their competitive set and help them shape, the, shape their digital roadmap and allocate their human, creative, and financial capital more efficiently. Because everyone agrees that a better investment in digital is probably going to get you a greater return than, dig, than investments in some other areas right now. But they don't know what they don't know. They really don't know where to start. So the idea is, how do you figure out how your digital capital allocation foots your overall corporate strategy, and how do you drive stakeholder growth? I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Scott Galloway. He is a professor of digital brands and marketing at NYU. And I love your conversations. I, by the way, the way I found out about you mm -hmm. was the Four Horsemen video, which is all over YouTube, and some of the conversations you've had about retail and, and mm -hmm. the deep dive you do into that space, which I find to be absolutely fascinating. So let, let's jump into retail. I love this quote of yours. You said, retail stores are the new black. Mm -hmm. Explain. So in the, in the world of e-commerce, I believe that pure play e-commerce has no future that almost every pure play e-commerce company is either going to open stores or go out of business. That's a pretty radical position, isn't it? Well, I, I would defend I think it's defensible. I would I would challenge anyone to name the pure play e-commerce company and 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 let's talk about whether this is a sustainable business or not. Mm -hmm. And effectively the consumer always gets what she wants. And there's there's three doors here. There's a great e-commerce site that just has an e-commerce offering. There's a great retail concept with just bricks and mortar or maybe a weak e-commerce site. And then there's door number three, a Sephora, a Williams-Sonoma, a Macy's that have great stores, great e-commerce, and use digital as a connective tissue for around a loyalty program. And the consumer wants door number three. I think the future looks more like Macy's and Williams-Sonoma than it looks like Amazon or Net-A-Porte or Gilt. And where does eBay fit into that ecosystem? I wouldn't describe eBay as a pure play retailer. I think of them as a marketplace. Just and in between a buyer and a seller. They're sell. not taking inventory. Uh, right. they're, they're, they're a marketplace. 
And speaking of inventory, you another quote of yours. We have these incredibly flexible, robust warehouses called stores. Explain. Yeah. So I've been a big fan of Amazon, and I'm actually going a little bit bearish on it because I think it. I think what Amazon has missed a little bit is that in terms of consumer behavior, consumers value convenience over speed. And that is, if you were to order. Uh, say you decided I, I, I'm going to spend more time outside at my home in, in the North Fork and I need some sunblock, so I'm going to order La Roche-Posay, which is this fantastic sunblock. You can either order on Amazon and have it delivered to you in a day, four hours, two hours if they have their way, or you could order it at Sephora.com and then bomb down the elevator here and pick it up at the Sephora two blocks away anytime between the hours of 10 and 8 p.m. Click and collect or buy online, pick up and store is probably the biggest phenomenon in retail in the last couple of years. We didn't see it coming. It's coming. It sounds very base, but it's hugely convenient to order online and pick up and store. And these, if, if it's in the store, why do I have to order online? Why can't I just walk two blocks and, and do that? Because people like to get the information. They like to do the browsing. Emotional and intellectual purchasing has moved from the store to online. So foot traffic to retail, down 50% in five years, Barry. But meanwhile, retail has grown 2 or 3% a year. But what's happened is the following. The browsing and buying has moved online. The fulfillment, the transaction, and the pickup – is still in the store. Think about cars. Think about when you and I were a kid and we used to go with our dad to that one area of town where we'd look at a car. We'd actually kick the tires, take a car on its test drive, look at those brochures, negotiate the transaction. The number of people now who've actually skipped a test drive has doubled just in the last five years. We can go online. Car companies are prohibited from actually selling online, but effectively we buy online now. We go to a great configurator. We start getting served ads by other automobile companies. We can go to Audi.com, build our A6 down to the leather piping on the seat. We can find out how much the dealer paid for it. We can get user reviews. And then we go into the dealership armed with the exact car we want, the exact price range we know we should pick. So car dealerships are no longer selling cars. They're really just warehouses fulfilling and, and consummating the transaction. That's a great metaphor for what's happening in retail. Browsing and decision-making have moved online, even if the transaction and the pickup are happening in retail. But bricks and mortar plays a great, you know, really important role. It's a great way to pick up stuff. It's a great place to learn more about the transaction. It's a great place to brand. These are powerful branding vehicles, these these brick and mortar stores. So I, I, I think the new black and e-commerce stores, a lot of them are opening bricks and mortar. So you talk about um, the biggest challenger to Amazon is stores like Macy's. And mm-hmm. I've noticed over the past few years in terms of marketing and displays within the stores, mm-hmm. and I know they own a variety of other stores. I think they own Lord & Taylor mm-hmm. or Bloomingdale's or some combination yeah, of. Yep. Um, but I've, I've noticed that they've really gotten very savvy about their online, and you show up at a store, hey, I, have, I like this, but you don't have it in black and you don't have it in a large. They're like, oh, we'll ship it to you for free. That's a new thing from them yep. that thinking like an e-commerce company, yep. not like a, well, we'll get a delivery in six months and you can come check us out then. Yeah, the most inspiring companies in retail for the last five years haven't been Amazon or Net-A-Porte. It's been Macy's and Nordstrom. A crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Five years ago, I advised hedge funds and uh, a large REIT came to us, uh, uh, the fund I was advising, and said, we want to take a control position and Macy's or a large position and advocate for them to shut it down and sell the underlying real estate, which is worth more than the stock right now. Mm -hmm. 
They saw the future was not where they were headed, and they made massive investments and leveraged their operational competence, their capital, their cash flow to build unbelievably strong e-commerce offerings, connected that to their stores, and have fantastic multi-channel offerings. Macy's stock has outperformed Amazon over the last one, three, and five years. Nordstrom stock has outperformed Amazon the last several years. These are incredible companies that have embraced a digital future and have proven basically everybody wrong. The future really is about multi-channel Macy's and Nordstrom's. I would argue most inspirational retailers and have rewarded their shareholders over the last last several years. So much for first mover advantage, at least when it comes to Amazon. Yeah, Leonard Lauder at Estee Lauder, another unbelievable company, uh, you know, said it, the second mouse often gets the cheese. If you really look at uh, uh, Peter Golder, who was a colleague at Stern and now is, a col- is now is a colleague at Dartmouth, is probably the best scholar under the age of 50 on the world of innovation. We talk about Clay Christensen. We talk about mm-hmm. but, but Peter Golder, in my opinion, is the kind of future of innovation as it relates to academia. And the body of his study basically says if you talk about returned stakeholders, mm-hmm. it's not the first mover. It's the second. The true innovator, the guy or the gal that goes first, usually doesn't serve shareholders that well. It's the person that comes in second. Apple was sec- Apple has been second at most stuff. They're not a true innovator in the definition of the word. They weren't the first into, into object-oriented computing. They weren't the first uh, MP3 player. They weren't sure. by far the first mobile phone. But they look at something, they improve upon it, they wait, and they come in and make it more user-friendly. The department stores, the best retailers, have often been the, the second mover. So let's talk a little bit about brand versus product because sure. you, you've discussed this you know, what's easier to fix, a good product with a bad brand or a, a bad product with a good brand? I, I think it's changed. I think, and in, in, I've devoted my life or majority of my professional life around brand. I've made a nice living from it. But I think the sun has passed midday on what I call the era of brand. The 80s and 90s, the primary way to drive a lot of shareholder value, Barry, was to have an average to good product and then hire the best talent around brand and create unbelievable intangible associations or a great brand. An average shoe, an average cup of coffee, and the, an average beer and the best brand in the world. But what do all these technological innovations and platforms allow us to do? They allow us to share great ideas. If this show is generally better than other shows, it's going to spread faster than anything before. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Scott Galloway of NYU Stern School and L2 Digital. Let's talk a little bit about Amazon. Um, what is it that they're doing wrong with their last mile strategy? So, uh, first off, incredible company, and uh, uh, Jeff Bezos arguably the best CEO over the last ten years. I think their two primary advantages that has cost them tens of billions of dollars to to erect have been this last mile, incredible last mile infrastructure, such that they can supposedly within twenty four months get about fifty percent of American households, fifty percent of everything they buy within two or four hours, which That's is amazing. incredible. And then one click paying. I think we. We overlook what an incredible innovation it is to be able to just touch something and know that it's on its way. However, Barry, I would argue that some recent innovations erode those competitive advantages. Specifically, Apple Pay, some of the things Google's doing are going to make one that one-click payment advantage erode in value. I think other people are catching up. I think the most unusual uh, or the thing that none of us are expecting, and, and, and there's still some time to see if it plays out, is I actually believe Uber is going to uh, give a lot of retailers, the opportunity to catch up very fast around the last mile without making the same staggering investment Amazon has had to make. I think effectively Uber has created a vascular system 
for business. And when you have someone, a smart person inside their own car that they have paid for without a union, without a without a uniform, and by, by the way, I'm not sure that's a good thing, without health insurance, you're effectively giving every retailer and every business in the world that last mile confidence that cost Amazon billions of dollars for a fraction of the cost. So in sum, I think the Amazon advantages, those two advantages, are slowly being eroded by other innovations. Let's talk a little bit about both of those things. I don't really see what the big deal about one click is. I'll take mm-hmm. the other side because I've been on Amazon for well almost 20 years. Yep. I, uh, I want to say 1997 or 98. Mm-hmm. And um, when I go to buy something and I'm an mm-hmm. Amazon Prime member, I kicking yep. and screaming finally did it. And since then, just love it uh, yeah, over the past great. couple of years. So when I buy something, it's which credit card am I paying? Is it the mm-hmm. office? Is it home? Mm-hmm. Which of the home cards is it? Is it going to the office? Is it going to the house? Is it going to a third destination? So for me, one click really never Was worked. Never a big because, deal. because I always, and what's the big deal? I, I select one of these four credit cards. Mm-hmm. I select one of these four destinations. It's It's not terrible. I love the idea of Uber being that last mile, but let's think about that. Mm-hmm. The closest Bloomingdale's to my house is, I live all the way in the middle of nowhere on the North Shore of Long Island, but it's still 20 minutes away. If I order something from Amazon and with Prime, it's usually there within two days. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're going to get it there all that much sooner, but I'm ha- you know, I need something. Here it is. It's here in two days. There's nothing I need right now that I can't drive 10 minutes and get. Mm-hmm. So anything I'm ordering, all right, I'll get here when it gets here. If I want something from Bloomingdale's, for them to send an Uber driver to my mm-hmm. house, if I was going to take an Uber ride to my house, mm-hmm. um, that would cost you know 30 bucks or so. Yep. So is there going to be that much of an infrastructure of deliveries that they're not just dropping off one package, they're dropping off 10 things? And it's essentially a rounding error to, to a store like that? So, so the short answer is no. But I would argue, Barry, that the war of shareholder value isn't going to be won or lost over you. I think you're the anomaly. And that Maybe. Is, I think the majority of shareholder and wealth creation is going to be around serving people in urban areas. Because to mm-hmm. be blunt, that's where the majority of the wealth is moving towards. I think we're creating a set of super cities where the density of income and disposable income is aggregating around a small set of super cities. So I think Amazon still works for you. Quite frankly, I don't think it works for Amazon. I think it's going to be expensive for them to deliver to you. Their Amazon's shipping costs were $6 billion last year. They're That's going amazing. Up, they're going up 40% a year. They took in $3 billion in fees. That's not sustainable, even with Amazon's cost, cheap cost of capital. You want to see a celebrity death match? Wait till this holidays, as Walmart has announced a Prime-like competitor at 50 bucks. And they have stores. The thing that epitomizes this battle and the advantage Walmart right now will have over Amazon is Amazon has, or Walmart has this great ad that says free delivery if you pick it up in store. And do you know what percentage <laughs> of the population lives within a drive of Walmart? A lot. That's not exactly delivery. That's going to the store and shopping. Yeah, but if, it, if it's waiting for you, it's packaged and you can bomb right in and bomb right out. My prediction, Amazon is going to buy... A gas station company, as fossil fuels become less relevant in our life, we're used to bombing They're in and out of the gas up station. Left and right, the- just what's happened in London. They took the ticket kiosk that where people no longer sell tickets. People can order their groceries at a tube station and have them waiting for them at their destination tube station. People don't mind picking up stuff. Was it a missed opportunity for Amazon 
not to have grabbed Radio Shack with their thousands of stores? I think that would have been a really interesting combination. But Amazon is so smart. They have such uh, such incredible access to capital. I think they're going to do something dramatic. I wouldn't be surprised if they buy the post office or take a major investment in the post office. That's, that's really? a problem. Look, what's happening? If you see job growth and job declines, most of the a lot of the job declines are coming out of municipal governments and government employees who are under constant pressure. I wouldn't be surprised if Amazon strikes a deal with the government to take over their less performing post offices. That would be astonishing. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Scott Galloway. He is a professor of digital marketing and brand at NYU Stern. I really love the video you did talking about the four horsemen of technology. Mm-hmm. And um, we already discussed Amazon Let's jump right into Facebook. Sure. You call, um, first you note how Facebook has changed the taxonomy of relationships, Mm -hmm. which is very significant for the way people interact socially. But the question that I, the statement I really liked was, Facebook has pulled off the greatest bait and switch in history. Explain what you mean by that. Oh, absolutely. Facebook convinced some of the biggest brands in the world to spend tens of millions of dollars to build these communities, uh, uh, you know, likes and fans. And these brands did it because the notion was you'll get to own this community and they'll be captive. What an unbelievable asset. Uh, But Facebook then said, just kidding, put a walled garden around it. And the organic reach on Facebook, meaning the percentage of messages that Chanel puts out to their community that actually reach the Chanel community is now 6%, meaning only one in 16 messages reach them unless, Barry, they pay and they advertise. So this was an incredible bait and switch. These are not these are not communities owned by the brands. They're owned by Facebook. Same things happen. It' gonna happen on Instagram. Well, right now it's 100% organic reach. They will figure out a way to put a paywall around it. But I'm shocked there isn't more, if you will, outrage. I, I admire Facebook for being able to pull this off, but I think we forget how important it is to be liked or cute as an organization. Steve Ballmer and Bill Gates were not likable or cute. No. Sergey and Larry, more likable, more cute, but the regulators are getting angry at them. Facebook, lean in, the hoodie. They have gotten a ton of license from corporate America and regulators, in my view, that has given them a lot of leeway. I think what they have done has been exceptional in terms of their ability to say one thing and then do another uh, for the for the benefit of their own shareholders. And by the way, I say that as an as an admirer. What they've done has been incredible. And yet, there's been issues about privacy and issues about people's data. Mm-hmm. How does they how do they as a company deal with that, or do they just shrug it off and say, "Hey, man, get used to it. Privacy is a thing of the past." Anyone who's talking about privacy is typically someone like you or me, a a guy over the age of 50. Young people don't seem that concerned with privacy. At the end of the day, the consumer behavior indicates one thing. that People like to have their privacy violated as long as there's a coupon or a more relevant offering at the end of it. We want relevance. And part of that relevance is observing our data stream and then and then responding with a more relevant offer. Now, the identity war is the secret war taking place online, and Facebook is winning. And that is the ability to attach a specific identity with specific actions such you can serve more relevant ads and charge more for those relevant ads. Google cannot track specific identity on their core platform, the search engine. And it makes sense. Neither you nor I are comfortable with the idea of having our name and our picture above a list of everything we have typed into that query box, right? All of us have typed some crazy stuff into that box we would rather people not know about. However, we're not that, as- That's what the incognito window there on you go. Chrome is for. Yeah, that's where you, you, know, you, you, you erase your cookies. But 
with Facebook, for some reason, we're not as uncomfortable with Facebook attaching our actions to our specific identity on Facebook. So as a result, Facebook is now tracking more identity data than Google and is able to use their platform across the wider web to serve more relevant targeted ads. Facebook is winning the identity war. Now, I find I'll give you a perfect example of something online that I find creepy. And I don't know if other people find the same thing. So my wife and I were literally in a um, florist nursery um, recently, and we see this hanging chair, beautiful mm-hmm. hanging chair. It's got cushions. It's really, really odd, interesting shape and uh, obscene price. And I just make note of who makes it, and I say, let me look at it online, where it's a third cheaper. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, so now I just want to get a sense of what the markup was. I know what mm-hmm. this sh- more or less should go for, and I forget about it. Now, wherever I go, ads for that chair are popping up. And it's like, no, no, I, I'm done with that. I'm moving on. Why are you following me around the internet? It's, it gets annoying. It's contextual retargeting. If you go to an Audi site, you're going to start getting sure. served ads by Lexus and Mercedes because it looks as if you're in the market for a car. Most consumers actually like it. Most consumers would rather have a relevant ad on the right rail or their top That's exactly ad. where it is. It's, it's either mo- Google ads. Most people, or- most people actually like that, embrace it. The thing you talked about, though, the other point is showrooming. That is going in and trying to find a different price. And there's been a lot of popular press that this is bad for retailers. The majority of the research shows when people pull out their phone and price compare, they not only end up buying, they often end up buying more. Because typically what they find, except for the retailer you were in, they typically find they're getting it around the best price or a good price. And then they start reading user reviews, finding more products. So actually, web rooming, being in a store and using your phone is accretive to the host retailer. Really? That's yeah. fascinating. I know that at one point in time, Best Buy was a little discouraging. About yeah. It. I think they've since changed their tune. They have, and now look at Best Buy. That's a great example of the war of, of how stores are new black. If you order a flat screen TV, it's going to be it's going to get to you faster if you order from Best Buy because they're going to fulfill it out of their store in East Hampton or some some right. some store out there. Then Amazon will get it to you because they're using these unbelievably robust, flexible warehouses called stores. That that's amazing. So now let's talk a little bit about Google. And I I love you quote about Google. It's the closest thing to God. You ask a question and you get an answer. So. How is Google losing if we consider them godlike? Sure. So when I say God, you know, we, when, what are you doing when you pray? You send up information or a question hoping that a higher source that's smarter than you will send you back an answer, right? right. Is my kid going to be okay? Now you go on to Google and say symptoms and treatment of croup, right? And it gives you back what's going on. So I think it is somewhat godlike. Now, having said that, I think that uh, Google's going to decline in value and influence. Why? Because they're a one-dimensional company that hasn't had any success branching out much beyond Android or Gmail. 90% of their revenues, 120% of their profit from the search platform. Also, at the end of the day, Barry, the way it summarize it is that this rapid change to a mobile world is not good for Google. On a mobile phone, 80% of our time done in-app. We're less likely to search when we're in-app, which is not good for Google. A lot of competitors popping up. A billion queries a day on Facebook. 25% of all product searches now start on Amazon. So That's amazing also. So their dominant, their dominant market share is starting to show some signs of weakness, and cost per click is going down. And as a result, profits and revenues have uh, – their profit and revenue growth, if you will, have – have stalled. This is a, a one-dimensional company, an unbelievable revolutionary product. But I think my prediction is you're going to see a couple more min, uh, earnings misses, and all of a sudden that company is going to find focus again. The self-driving cars, the broadband blimps, the wearables 
are going to go away. What about this new app called Now? I don't know yeah. how familiar you are with that. That essentially hovers over the whole operating system and even within apps brings up that exact sort of search uh, behavior you were discussing. So it, 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 you could never count Google out. They're just they, the smart. human capital, the people, the culture, just a remarkably innovative company. But based on where they are now relative to their valuation in the marketplace, I think they have some substantial competitive threats. And the thing about Google versus an Apple or a, a traditional retailer is you're one click away from going to a competitor. So I, I think Google on a risk-adjusted basis has greater risk than some of the other guys. And I think they're going to leak market share to Facebook. We didn't talk about YouTube. That's, everybody, I just circled that question this Everybody second. talks about how YouTube's going to disrupt TV. I think Facebook's going to disrupt YouTube. For the first time ever, there are now more native videos uploaded to the Facebook platform than links to YouTube. I think you're going to see Facebook start to garner more and more share of our time in terms of how we, how we watch video. I think it's moving to Facebook. That, that's interesting. Since, since you mentioned Apple as the fourth Mm -hmm. Horseman, let's talk a little bit about Apple, which you call a luxury brand, not so much a technology company. Hundred percent, it's been the worst. It's been the worst, uh, or the best house in the worst neighborhood for a long time, and that's uh, tech hardware. That's just a bad business, low margin. And they Blackberry, decided. Blackberry, Dell. Who else is in that space that you, know, you like? I was on the board of Gateway Computer. I mean, it's just a difficult. Uh, our margins, our margins at Gateway were six percent. Try and operate a business on six percent margins. It's just computer hardware is just really difficult. They have effectively moved down the torso. We only do three things in business. We, uh, Barry, we appeal to the brain, rational decisions, low margin, transportation, food, basic shelter. We appeal to the heart, choosing moms, choose Jeff. P&G figured out that we're social animals. The biggest predictor of life expectancy is how many people in our life we love. It's not how fat or how skinny you are, or how much we smoke. You take, If you're a new, a new mother, you're going to live. If you're taking care of your parents, you're more likely to live. P&G figured that out post-World War II and said, if you wash your kids in clothes and tie detergent, you love them more. We have a need to love. And, and CBG firms tapped into that. And then as you move down to the torso, you go to the second most powerful instinct in the world, and that's reproduction, the self-expressive benefit. The watch I'm wearing costs 800 bucks. I paid a lot more to, to wear it because I'm trying in a vain attempt to intimate Italian masculinity to the rest of the world. And on a very base <laughs> level, and I don't like to admit this, I think I'm trying to signal to the opposite sex that if you mate with me, your kids are more likely to survive than if you mate with someone who's wearing a Swatch watch. And I don't think in the business world we're very honest or open about how strong self-expressive benefit is. Tesla's not an environmental car. It's an attempt to signal to the opposite sex that you can afford a $140,000 car. Women wear ergonomically impossible $600 shoes because they're trying to solicit inbound offers from those same men. I realize how base and how awful that sounds, but it's the core of evolution, and it's what has driven the best best sector in the world, Barry, the luxury sector. Richemont, larger market cap than Deutsche Telekom. Estee Lauder, larger market cap than WPP. Apple has decided we want to be in that business. And they have they are the only company in history that has successfully migrated down the torso. A better computer, rational decision, sang to our heart emotionally with songs, and now they are the ultimate self-expressive benefit. You no longer signal with your watch or your hoodie. You signal with your iOS. If you own an Apple phone, you are saying to the world, I am smarter, better educated, and have more options in terms of who I mate with. The transaction is complete to the Apple Watch. Apple is now the ultimate luxury brand. It defines what it means to be a luxury brand, and they're going to be the first trillion-dollar market cap company on the back of their successful transition down the torso and have become a luxury brand. Scott, where can people find your work? What's the best way for them? Uh, I know you have a YouTube channel. Yep. 
uh, for L2. How do people find that other uh, than thanks, just punching in Scott Galloway into YouTube? Thanks for asking. L2inc.com. Uh, almost all our videos are there. All right. That's great. And um, be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Scott, your Twitter handle is? Prof Galloway. Prof Galloway uh, at Twitter. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast portion of our show where I take my earpiece out and don't worry about time, although I'm getting better at kind of pacing that. I used to be so awful at that. You have no idea how thinking about how much time do we have, it's really a distraction yeah. and, a, and a disruption. So anyway, Scott, thank you so much for doing thank this. Thank you. I've, I'm really, I've, I've fallen in love with your videos. My wife nice. is a teacher, and there's one thing I wanted to ask you about. Yep. So I, I first I showed her some of your videos. She really, she was like, oh, that's kind of interesting, yep. like passing interest in her husband's life. Uh-huh. But then the letter, the email oh, from the student, yeah. and she's like, who is this guy? This is awesome. She's a teacher, and she yep. has all sorts of headaches with kids like yep. everybody else does. Um Tell us the derivation of the get your S together letter, which we can't yeah. uh, curse over the airwaves. Um, how did that come about? You, you just never know when your 15 minutes are going uh, to hit. And this was an email I got from a student who walked into my class late, and then I kicked him out of class. I, I kicked As per your posted class rules, policies. Yeah, I also think in general in graduate school we coddle students too much. And as a clinical professor, our – you know, our mission is to try and prepare kids for the workforce, and I think part of that is giving them a sense of what the workforce is actually going to be like and trying to impose some standards on them. And one of those is if you're late to my class, I don't allow you in. And I didn't How allow late? This. Can you show up two minutes late, five minutes you're late? You're either on time or you're not allowed in. It's hard, hard military hard stop. stop. Uh, I have a theater seating for the kids who work part-time because I realize sometimes they can't get downtown in time. At 6.15, we let people in for a theater seating. Meaning on Meaning the outskirts of the class. Yeah, no. At exactly six fifteen, we let in latecomers for the part timers. Oh, okay. And we after the first, seating. after yeah. the first part of the first That's act right. is over. But this first kid came scene. in. I kicked him out, and then he wrote a long snarky email to me about how he checked out three other classes. Anyways, I got equally snarky back, and then it got forwarded, and then within, and then Deadspin, the sports blog sure. of all places, picked it up. But it got about half a million views. And at one point, I think the dean of the school was getting an email, either wildly in favor or wildly against what I had done about every seven or eight seconds, wow. and it just kind of blew up. And it tapped into a vein because, one, a lot of people feel as if, okay, this millennial generation is entitled and we're very supportive of my response. At the same time, a lot of people were said, look, these kids are paying 6000 bucks to take your class. If they show up a few minutes late, you just need to suck it up and deal with it. So it, it like anything that goes viral, I think it tapped into a, a bit of a controversy at the time. It was about five or six years ago, and every two years it gets fired up again. But that that is not what I had hoped or expected. Would you know is is the piece of literary work that I would be known for? <laughs> well, you know this generation and the offspring of the baby boomers, who you and I are really just on the other edge of that. Yep. Where we'd be twixt in between Gen X and and boomers. Yep. But um. You know, they get participation awards for showing up. And I yeah. think my wife tells me that they come to school yeah. with that attitude. Hey, I'm here. Where's my trophy? No, yeah. no, you got to do something to earn a trophy. It's it's a double-edged sword. So the, uh, about 80 people at L2 right now, I'd say the average age is around 26. So I work a lot with millennials. And the downside is they are more entitled. Remember when we went to work? If you Can you imagine walking to your boss at your first job and saying, I want to have a career talk? I mean, <laughs> they would have said, okay, work your, work your ass off, career talk over, get back to work. And- <laughs> 
now these kids are very focused on their lifestyle, balance, things that we just wouldn't have had the, the guts to bring up. Having said that- At least not till 10, 20 years yeah, into until your career. Yeah, until we had some currency. Some Having, ulcers, some divorces, something. Something, right. All of those things. But the, the flip side is there's a lot of media attention on the negatives of millennials, but the reality is they're more talented than you and I were at really? their age. Oh, yeah. The tools they've grown up with, the skills they've garnered, just some of these kids are exceptional. We wouldn't put up with this otherwise. The, the, these kids would have trouble getting a job. The reason they are, can demand more of a balance in their life, the reason they can demand more talks around their career, the reason they can demand uh, you know, wanting to know what is the larger role that their job plays in the world is because a lot of these kids are outstanding. There's some of the some of the skills they bring, the ability to pull together information, uh, you can't force maturity, so that's still the same. Sure. You know, but millennials are the most talented generation I have ever worked with, hands down. It's going to be never heard anybody it's say gonna that. Be that's ins- fascinating. It's going to be inspiring to see what they're able to build over the next ten or fifteen years. You know, the debate that that has been circulating about technology and robotics and what it's costing in terms of jobs. I, I speak at a lot of schools. I give yeah. a lot of speeches around, and one of the things. I'll never forget, we went to a, a wedding, uh, my wife's cousin in, in Virginia, and we meet not only, so I know the, the groom who, from he's this tall to now he's getting married, and we meet yeah. some of his friends and the groomsmen. One of the groomsmen created this perfect for college, an Apple iPhone case, the dumbest thing in the world. He has built into the back of it a bottle opener, so you could pop a beer. You always have a- Genius, right? Right. Like, so obvious. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. How are you yeah. going to manufacture this? He's like, oh, we have a company in China. They drop ship yeah. it. We're selling about 40,000 units a month. This is a kid who's 20 in college. Uh-huh. Like, uh, and every time I go to a conference with young kids, with college students, that sort of insane experience, yeah. they understand, forget brand loyalty, forget company loyalty- the company ain't going to be loyal to you. They have no loyalty back, yeah. and they know that they're essentially um, they're independents. They're they're you know contract players, and they're aware of it. Yeah, it's we we get we get angry at them because most of us now are in principal positions where we want to talk about loyalty because it it serves our advantage. Right. But at the end of the day, I wonder if they've figured it out. And you've talked about this at, at your blog, the big picture, and we've talked about this a lot. There are a lot of well-publicized cases of these kids who can tap into global markets and have extreme wealth or success really quickly. There's a dark side to that, though, and that is I think it's getting harder and harder for these kids just to be solid citizens. Say they're not geniuses. Say they don't get lucky. I think it's getting harder and harder just to punch out an average living. And, and you know, this gets into income inequality, and, and I, I like a lot of the work that you've done on this and a lot of the work that your past guest, Henry Blodgett, has done on this. Mm-hmm. But I would, when I look at my class versus 14 years ago, I got 140 kids on every Monday night. I think it's never been easier to be a billionaire. I think someone in my class will be a billionaire either through alternative investments or starting a tech company. At the same time, it's never been harder to be a millionaire. And what I mean is to be aggregate a million dollars, just be a middle-class guy or gal that aggravates some semblance of a living over 10 or 20, 30 years. The top, the most talented people are going to aggregate wealth faster and at a velocity we've never seen before. But the rest, it's going to be harder and harder just to be a solid citizen. When you when you look at the state of the recovery as to what's been going on, yeah, you know, I, I love the William Gibson quote: "The future is here; it's just not evenly distributed." Oh gosh, yeah. The same is true for the recovery. Yeah, and it depends on what industry you're in, where you live in the country. You mentioned super yeah. urban centers, so we travel around the country and visit clients. 
DC is a house of fire. You go to yeah. Boston, yeah. and that's and New York, obviously. That's yeah. this coast. Seattle. Uh, people tell me, oh, the recovery is terrible. Have you been to Seattle? Not Seattle. Fun. Austin is a little smaller. I think Austin is the fastest growing city in the country. Yeah. But Seattle is number two, and it's a big city with a lot of industry and a lot yeah, of technology. Look at the traffic, it, and housing prices. Yeah, it's just amazing. They're still actually fairly reasonable. At least compared to San Francisco and and Silicon Valley and and Napa, that that whole run of an hour north and an hour south of the city of San Francisco is utterly insane. It's lost its mind. We're creating a small a small number of Elysium like environments mm-hmm. where the life is just incredible there if you can afford to access it and the opportunities. But most people can't afford it in Europe. It's London. You can't. Right. It's London and the Seven Dwarves. If you're an unbelievable systems application developer, say in Bocconi, Italy, or in, in Marinello, you end up in Milan within 12 months, and you're in London within 36 months. Really? There is. Uh, look at how. And you've talked a lot about this. You know, the top top one percent aggregating 95 percent of the wealth. But this isn't a one percent thing. This is really like 20 percent of the professionals, technology yeah. entrepreneurs. There's a whole separate that the middle class has really shrunk. Yeah. And the top 1%, what's so different today is the top 1% and the top one-tenth of 1% mm-hmm. are so far ahead of anything we've seen previously. If you if you hold that aside, put, put aside the G5s and the yep. $100 million properties, yep. just normal insane wealth, 100 yep. millionaires, yeah. that sort of top 1%, top 10%, top 20%, this recovery, I, I yeah. actually left out the most significant factor. If you have a graduate degree, if you yeah. have a any specific technical skill yeah. and degree that goes with it, this recovery has been very, very Fantastic. strong for you, right? Really good. If you come out of college with an English literature degree and you don't have a skill set that you can take to one of those urban super centers, yeah. this has been a really terrible recovery we're, for you. We were talking about Facebook. Look, look, look at the innovative companies of the past. Unilever, $150 billion market cap, has about 125,000 families being supported by Unilever. Intel, more efficient, about 100,000 people, $150 billion market cap. Facebook, $225 billion market cap, 9,000 people. That's amazing. So you have more and more spoils going to fewer and fewer people. And Facebook's a good company. It's great if you own the Ferrari dealership in Palo Alto. It's great if you own real estate in San Francisco. It's great if you're serving the ecosystem of Facebook. But I think these companies have so dramatically outpaced wealth creation. These companies, the four horsemen, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google, have the population of Lexington, Kentucky, or Corpus Corpus Christi, and they have the GDP Right, the value of the GDP of Spain or Australia. That's amazing. When you talk about, and they've effectively, I think, legislatively and and operationally done to the U.S. what the South couldn't do militarily. I think they're seceding from the nation, Barry. They're ultimate. They're incredible tax avoiders. It's all legal, right? But they're licensing their IP overseas and avoiding taxes. They're telling women they'll pay for them to freeze their eggs. They're telling people that they'll do better DNA testing. They're giving them their own municipal transportation back and forth from work. They've effectively seceded from the nation. They've said, we're smarter, we're better, we can create more wealth. We're going to create a society outside of the normal boundaries of the of, of the sovereign, the U.S., and we're going to operate in the Netherlands. I think they were effectively seceding from the U.S. And Well, when we look at Google as an example in San Francisco, a lot of the complaints about the Google bus you would think, who cares? They have a bus. Is that much more room on on public transportation? But that's not the attitude in San Francisco, is it? 
It's you have a lot of frustration. I think a lot of the civil unrest that's taken place is a lot about the individual acts of violence, but it's about frustration that there's just a, if you're in this Uber class, you have the right skills, the right work ethic. It's never been a better time. But if you're the 90, 80 percent below that, it's just harder and harder to be a, a, the average Joe. The heirs to the Walmart fortune, the Walton heirs, were yeah. probably very decent people, have more wealth than the bottom 40 percent of America. If there's going to be a revolution in this country, it's probably going to start on aisle five of a Walmart. I mean, it's just <laughs> the, the if you have the right skills, it's never been a better time. But that that quote unquote population of people with the right skills is getting smaller and smaller and more and more fruits have have accreted to those people. The good slash bad news is whenever this has happened in history, it usually self-corrects in the form of war, revolution, or famine. That's the self-correction? Well, that's not very encouraging. That isn't encouraging, so, isn't it? So, and the funny thing is, you know, post-World War II, you could raise a family on a job as a postman or a fireman or a, yeah. or even a teacher or, hey, if you were an accountant or a lawyer, you, you were in the upper crust. You were doing really well. Now that whole um, uh, low-skilled jobs have, have slid to the bottom of the middle class, and what used to be considered high-skilled jobs, like lawyers or accountants, maybe accountants are doing better than lawyers. I think we cranked out too many lawyers uh, yeah. so, some time ago. But it seems like the, the alignment and the strata has really changed, and it comes back to the educational attainment. If you have the right degree and the right focus, yeah. the, right, the right sector— Hey, these are great times. Everybody but, else is having a, uh, having a challenge. But those fruits were increasingly only being able to be picked by people who were either exceptional or come from wealthy families. The bottom decile of households, 8% of the kids will go to college. The top decile, 88%. And this is, this is a real point of personal passion for me. I was raised by a single mother who lived and died a secretary. We didn't have a, li- a lot of money, but we had a nice life. And I was able to go to public schools all the way through undergrad UCLA, graduate school at Berkeley. You know, if I didn't have the big hand of government and and very generous forward-looking visionaries in the form of the founders of the University of California, I just wouldn't be here with you right now. For That's sure. the bottom line. And those that same access, you know, what my tuition was at UCLA and Berkeley. It was twelve hundred bucks a year. And I'll, I'll beat you. It's, I went to SUNY Stony Brook. You know, the joke was the uh, Berkeley is the Stony Brook of the West. And my tuition was four fifty a semester. And a look semester. at and look at what it is now. It is a $8, lot. $8, it is a lot more. And kids are taking on student debt, more student debt than 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 credit cards. It's it's hurting the housing crisis. It's giving them a huge, a huge uh, headwind before they get out. And I'm worried that you know you know kids just aren't going to have the same unbelievable opportunities that I had because the, it doesn't seem as if. The bottom line is education is the lubricant of upward mobility. No my doubt. class, and I, this is a man in the mirror test, Barry, we charge kids $6,000 to take my class. I have 120 kids or 140 kids on a Monday night. Every time I walk into class, we're charging kids $60,000 that night for one class, and the majority of it is being paid for in debt. Something is wrong here. We have to figure out a way, and now I'm really on my soapbox, we have to figure out a way to give middle-class kids with single mothers, the same opportunity to be in this chair. And, you know, I, I, I'm public about this. I gave 10% of my holdings in, in my company to the University of California, uh, Berkeley, Los Angeles, and NYU because they've been so incredibly supportive. But I really worry that our economy is under a huge threat, that, that the same number of people aren't going to have access to the unbelievable education that you and I had at the same price. And the amazing thing is a lot of these schools have enormous endowments. And it's not just the Ivies. Yeah. You look at Harvard, Yale, Stanford, 
Uh, that's a hundred billion dollars in endowment just amongst those three. That's astonishing. A hundred So if they do nothing else, they're throwing off somewhere between five and ten billion dollars a year in in revenue. That's insane. And how do they manage to charge but, so much? But the same thing is happening there. So winner take all economy. It's the same thing's happening in education. And you, the operative term there was hundred billion dollar endowments in three schools. The, the schools, the top five or seven endowments are growing at a much faster rate than everybody else. In education, we're ripe to be disrupted. We've tripled our tuition in the last 15 years. Inflation's gone up 2 or 3% a year. We are right. so ripe to be disrupted. So people are looking for a tech player to disrupt us. You know who's going to disrupt education? Khan Harvard. Academy? Oh, really? <laughs> Harvard and well, MIT. Well, MIT did the open open course uh, the great, thing a few years ago. It's the same effect that's taking place across the economy. The top, the top, top guys are going to accrete more power than anyone else. Harvard has said they could double their incoming freshman class without sacrificing any quality. Really? They're going to take some of that endowment. They're going to take some technology. And I'm predicting they're going to say Harvard, MIT, Stanford, and Berkeley, at some point, the top schools are going to say, here's, here's the deal, free. And we're going to triple, quadruple, quintuple. And then what does Indiana do? What does, what does Fordham do? What does the University of Miami do? What do they do? When the best 10 or 20% of the population has access to the best schools for free and every every company worth its salt only recruits at those few schools. So how does Harvard, with this much physical space, triple their entering freshman class? Is it online only or are people literally, are they tripling the number of students in Cambridge? I think it's going to be a hybrid. I think they're going to be able to double the size of their class in the next five years and triple it over the next 10 to 20 years because- They'll make people more efficient, let them take a lot of their lectures, right? We talk about a flipped classroom. The actual teaching takes place online, and we come together to discuss. Uh -huh. Every university, including ours, is, is, is now building satellite campuses. For all the talk about online, we just opened a campus in Abu Dhabi. We opened a campus in Shanghai. Wharton's opening in Singapore. So we're opening all over the world. But it's like every other category, where there used to be 50 players eking out a good living, there's going to be two or three capturing 120% of the profits. Wow, that's unbelievable. That's interesting. Let's talk about some other sectors of the economy um, that that's ripe for disruption. Um, and I know we mentioned television earlier. Mm -hmm. um, do you watch uh, Silicon Valley on HBO? Love it. Do you? Such a hilarious It's a great show. show. It's just, yeah. it's just, you know, Mike Judge has done some interesting oddball stuff in the past this seems to be the first thing i'm trying to remember the future the name of the future show where everybody the movie he did uh idiocracy yeah was the name of it, where everybody's just a blub sitting around tv sitting around a couch watching tv and it was really sophomoric and goofy and when i first saw the previews for this i'm thinking hey is this guy grown up enough that this is really going to be a serious and he seems to be has the tone perfect i mean it's just yeah. Every time I speak to anybody on the venture side, on the private equity yeah, he's side- He's nailed it. Just he, nailed he's it. totally, totally dead on. And it's amazing to think that there's a whole part of the country where for 100 miles up the coast, that's half of what's going on. Yeah, it's just- it, I mean, obviously, it's an exaggeration, but I love- uh, Barely, though. It's barely. It's People have everything's said- Everything's rooted in reality. It's an yeah. exaggeration, but it's not like a gross parody. No. It's a slight exaggeration. No, you see some crazy stuff, but- the, the other show, I always love to watch, I love Silicon Valley and I watch girls and I love Silicon Valley because I can relate to it so much. Mm -hmm. And I love girls because I can't relate to it in any way. And I'm constantly thinking, is this what young people are really like? And I find it so fascinating 
Because I, I don't know if you've ever watched Girls, but it's, I've tried desperately and I just can't, <laughs> but can't it's, tolerate. It's literally wow. Is this what kids are like? And the honest answer is, I think it is. And so it's fascinating. It's almost like being a voyeur. But Silicon Valley, uh, you know, it really shows how some of the sausage is made. And there's a series of well-publicized entrepreneurs, but what people don't do is they, they don't realize we have a tendency to romanticize entrepreneurship. Kids come mm-hmm. to me because I'm an entrepreneur and say, I want to start a business. And I would say, if you have the skill set to go to a platform like a Bloomberg, like a Facebook, like a Google, and navigate the politics there, be, be effective as opposed to just being right, something I've struggled with my whole career mm-hmm. is the difference between being right and being effective, then on a risk-adjusted basis, you're better off going to work for a platform. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneurs are people who have no choice. It's like some, being a doctor is a terrible job now, but some right. people have no choice. They just right. have to be doctors, right? They were taking temperature since the age of six. Some people have to be in fashion. Entrepreneurship's the same way, and I think that show gets across just how difficult, scary, insecure, and sometimes you can kill yourself for seven or eight years or 10 years or longer and end up with not only nothing, but less than nothing. You know, owing your parents, your family, your credit tons card of money, everything. And we don't talk a lot about that, but it happens more than it doesn't happen. Well, that's the reality is that the vast majority of startups, the vast majority of, of new restaurants, of new retail stores, of new businesses, hey, two years out, most of them are gone. That's just the simple numbers of it. And I'm glad the show isn't glorifying, hey, uh, hang out a shingle and, and everybody get IPOs at a billion dollars. They're really making it clear that you could lose this company with one wrong decision yeah. anywhere along the way. They The litigation was really an insightful yeah. plot device because you know that happens all the time. Yeah, and just the the kind of full, full body contact hardball that takes place. I worked with a lot of VCs who were very... Some are outstanding. Some are super aggressive. It's just some of the stuff you see was really, really rapacious. It's a it's a it's a full body contact sport in terms of a startup, especially a venture back startup. So so they there's one episode where they're doing their second round, and yep. suddenly they start getting they become more obnoxious to the VCs, thinking making it look like they already have funded, yeah. and everybody starts throwing money at them. Yeah, and that leads to an interesting plot point, but it raises a question. What do you think about the valuations amongst startup these days? Is that mm-hmm. something you look at? Mm-hmm. And here we are in the market where people have been talking about valuations being too rich I yeah. don't know, for two years, and the market just keeps, yeah, keeps going. going up. Well, the economists called the the dot com crash perfectly. They just called it in 1997. <laughs> and right. I'm on the board of several startups, and what I'm telling them is raise raise money right now. Because you can. Yeah, I don't know if it's I don't know if this is the the best time to raise money, but I'm pretty confident it's not a bad time. And in general, I think asset prices across the board, because of low interest rates and things you understand a lot better than I do, are really high. And my sense is you raise money when you don't need it. Because when you really need it, it's typically pretty hard to raise money. Mm-hmm. So everybody, anybody who owns something, I'm saying if you're in a position or for whatever reason need to sell, then sell. But because I think it's a great time to sell almost anything. And if you're in a position to raise money or you think you might need to raise money, you know, I'm a, L2 is a venture back company. Mm-hmm. We have fantastic venture capitalists, a firm called General Catalyst. But we're even thinking we don't need the capital, but it's just not a bad time to put another five, 10, 20 million bucks in the tank right now because you can get really solid valuations. To, to say the least, and, and I'll tell you what my theory is, what's driving it. it. It has nothing to do with interest rates. It has nothing to do with the Fed. Um, I'm a car guy. I've been a car. First mm-hmm. word I ever said was car. I'm a car buff. Mm-hmm. And my whole adult working life, there are a series of cars I would like to own. And- 
they're now starting to creep up as I, oh, I can afford to buy uh, um, a 2005 Ford GT yep. or a 2002 BMW Z8. Because when they were $75,000 and I was making sixty, I couldn't afford that. Yeah. But the problem is the the Z8 is up to one seventy five. The GT is up to three hundred. Yeah. As my income goes up, these cars go up. And the reason for this, to bring it back to yeah. startup valuations, there are only so many of them. Yeah. And as we discussed before, with the top one, two, ten percent, there are so many people with so much money yeah. who desire those things that they don't care. They'll bid one fifty for a car that's really worth a hundred thousand yeah. dollars, or they'll bid fifty billion for Uber. Because they have to show Uber in their fund in order to make their limited partners happy. And so there's a limited number of, of these goods, a limited number of these companies that at least appear to have some shot at at being a home run. And so everybody piles into the same. Yeah. Look, look at the Ferrari market has gone insane. Yeah. Like I've always thought the Ferrari 275 was a gorgeous car <laughs> from 1961. And later in the 60s, the Dino. You could have picked up a Dino 15 years ago for $50,000. You are a car guy. $50,000. They're half a million dollars now. Yeah. Why? Because there aren't 10 million of them. They made a few thousand. Half of them were wrecked on the track, and the other half have been lovingly restored, and they've just completely... But it's I see the same people buying those 275s, going to the art market, yeah. and picking up uh, the Giacometti uh, sculptures or a Brancusi or, or whatever happens to float your boat, and piling into these private equity Look, shops. The, the, the best returns, the best industry in the world in the last five, 10 years is this market surges. It's been the vanity economy. The vanity economy. Yeah, Ferraris, anything that makes you more attractive or makes you feel more Those successful. Those signaling to the opposite sex. Yeah, even, even and a lot of people say, well, Scott, that's not true. I, I'm happily married. I'd, I just really like this Ferrari and I bought it and I kept it in my garage. And the question is, well, why does that make you feel good? Or people will say, or women will say, you know, I wear La Perla under my work clothes, and, I, and no one's ever going to see it. I'm happily, I'm in a monogamous relationship. I'm not trying to attract anybody. The question is, well, why do you feel so good? And it's because for the last 10 million years, it's been pounded into us that we have this job to be more attractive to the other mm-hmm. sex, such that we can find someone stronger, smarter, and faster than us to mate with, such that the next generation is smarter, stronger, and faster. And this vanity economy, the most successful people, there's a limited number of these objects because scarcity is what, or scarcity value is what gives sure. us the sense that it signals we're really successful when mm-hmm. you can only, only so many people can buy a, an Elongenzen watch, this unbelievable East German wa- uh, watchmaker owned by Richemont. And the prices have just gone, just gone nuts. And it's totally irrational. And that's where you want to be in business. You want to be in an irrational part of the ecosystem because that irrational translates into great margins. I, I love the work you do on the signaling and the value of these different things. Thanks. My um my biology, my favorite biology discussion of what beauty is. The, the my favorite rationalization is or description, maybe not rationalization, is well, beauty is a function of symmetry, and symmetry is a function of health, mm-hmm. and that means that they'll be better able to reproduce to bear children. That's right. And so you're attracted to these supermodels, yeah. not because they're so special, but because they meet all of the subconscious, instinctual indicia of mm-hmm. health and the ability to procreate. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how solid the science is behind that, mm-hmm. but I just love that rationalization. It makes so much sense along the the signaling of the watches and all that other stuff. It really, when you put things in terms of of evolutionary biology, mm-hmm. suddenly a lot of irrational behavior starts to look less irrational. Yeah, it becomes highly rational when you think about how important it is um, that the next generation be better. That's uh, you know Darwin, whatever you call it. 
The looks, uh, what we're attracted to in those looks, I do think it bifurcates, though. I think there's basics. Certain types of looks are more associated with infection or disease, and we have veered away from people who have those common characteristics. And mm-hmm. I'm always worried I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something off color here, and that's the quick end of my career, so I won't say what those <laughs> things typically are. The second thing, though, I do think is man-made, and that I think clothes look better on people who are built like hangers, who are unnaturally sure. thin. absolutely. And because great organizations like Vogue have consistently wanted to make clothes look fantastic, I think there has been a man-made... Um, a man-made training towards some unnatural body types. And it's not like the days of of the Rubenesque window, which when Rubenesque women, which were a signal of wealth, that you can actually you can be a little overweight, which, right. uh, which signaled, hey, I have more food well. than I need. Yeah, you know, I, I'm a CrossFitter. I don't know if I'm, I've become one of these CrossFitters. Watch those cult. knees. Yeah, there you go. I, actually, my knees are killing me, but I think that's more a function of my age. But anyways, nope. I think they CrossFit. tapped in. I think they tapped into this underserved marketplace, and that is women who don't necessarily want to be thin. If you look at the 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 workout industrial complex, it says to guys be ripped and be big. And right. I, I don't think that's always healthy, but I think it, it there's benefits to being strong. But I think what it says to women is be unnaturally thin. And I think that's unhealthy. When CrossFit, by the way, 60% of CrossFitters are women has said to women is be strong. And being strong as a woman can mean that you can be 5'5 five, five and 150 pounds and you can still be really strong. And it's celebrated that and it has tapped into this wildly underserved population of women who are normal and strong. Did you see the Times article about the new um, brands of CrossFit clothes? So yeah. women who, who do CrossFit, they can't wear off-the-rack clothes. If you're doing it strong yeah. enough so you have these big muscular thighs yeah. and you're a little ripped on, on the shoulders and arms, yeah. traditional women's clothes don't fit. I think it was the New York Times yeah. or Wall Street Journal. I, I want to say Times about this whole new run of clothes yeah. that are designed for the CrossFit female body and women. It was invented by a woman who was a CrossFit right. enthusiast, and it's become wildly successful. A, a real solid CrossFitter female goes to the regular department store, yeah. nothing Can't find fits anything. her. Well, you're starting to talk about, uh, one, that one of the best returns in retail have been plus-size clothing, but you're also starting to uh, uh, segueing into something that's a tectonic shift in the world of retail, and one of the reasons why I think Nike is just going to boom the next really? ten years. Oh my gosh! What is athletic apparel or, That's you, or exactly the yoga right. stuff? Right, we've had a tectonic shift in the third largest consumer market in the world, and that is for the first time ever in 2014. People are spending more money on sweatpants than on denim. Really? You now well, see. Well, you and I are of the denim. We're age, of the denim generation. But the, but the Rachel, thirty-year-olds in my office are not wearing. Rachel Strugratz, the technology reporter for WWD, very fashionable woman. You know what she wears every day, head to toe? Nike. Really, people are spending more and more money. That most, the, the most, the most popular brand among young wealthy millennials is Nike in apparel. Really, people are showing up to work. The fabrics, it, it doesn't. It's not just a bad pair of sweatpants that says "juicy" on the butt. These are interesting fabrics that look good. You are going to see athletic wear boom. Blue Under Armour, Lululemon, Exotica, Nike. They are gonna. They're going to boom the next 10 years. And it's going to, and, and God help, Levi Strauss and Company, Diesel, um, uh, any denim based company is going to be pushing a rock uphill the next 10 well, years. Well, there's clearly far too many denim companies yeah. before this happened. Yeah. Now that this is going to happen, it'll be interesting to see what sort of, um, what sort of uh, consolidation there is. So, so let's talk about another um, signal out there Twitter, yeah. Twitter followers, et cetera. Yeah. You know, I, I may be a little overweight, but I got 70,000 Twitter followers. So very I figure that's worth 30 pounds or yeah, so. I could lose stuff. 30 pounds or. That's good um, stuff. But 
you've talked about how far Twitter is behind Facebook. Yeah. And again, for you and I, yeah. I would bet you're much more of a Twitter user than you are a oh, Facebook yeah. user. Yeah, you and I were talking about this. I, uh, you and I don't get Facebook. I would like to put a banner across my Facebook page that says there's a reason we haven't stayed in touch. I just don't <laughs> like it. Right. I don't get it. But as Yoda don't said- Don't care about your baby's yeah, poo Done. Doesn't interest done. me. Done. It's, but as Yoda said, you have to forget what you know. If you look at the numbers, Facebook's the most successful product in the history of mankind. It's That's more unbelievable. successful than God, Allah, Coca-Cola, communism, whatever you want to call it. It's relationships, meaningful relationships with 2.4 billion people across Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook. Anyways, Twitter. My basic rap is on Twitter, and I love Twitter. No doubt it's a great company. No doubt. I think they've got a great management team. The question is, are they worth, worth more than Coach, Tiffany, and, and you know, throwing Abercrombie or Clorox combined? I right. just think it's wildly overvalued. And if you look at the user base, it appears to a flat line. And I would argue that their product innovation hasn't been nearly as robust as Facebook's or even seen a way about. We tend to, as Americans, think of ourselves as being the home of innovation. Actually, if you look at the product roadmap of a lot of the social media platforms in Asia, WeChat, Sina Weibo, mm -hmm. Kaukau Talk Line, in um, uh, 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 South Korea and Japan, respectively, their product roadmap is actually more innovative than what we're seeing here. But I don't think Twitter, quite frankly, is innovated. And, and if you look what at the What about Periscope? Race, we'll see. I, I, that's exciting. Um, I'm hedging because, quite frankly, I don't know a lot about it. I think it's exciting, real time. My partner loves it, uses it all the time. Oh, really? He's on the air a couple of couple of days a week, and he'll pull up Periscope. I have it on my phone. I have yet to set it up. He'll pull up Periscope and say, "All right, we're about to go on the air." He'll do a quick once around the the studio, and then bang, that's it. And he gets real time. Back and forth. Another one you just mentioned, we're sitting here in Bloomberg and we're seeing all these screens, these, these headlines come across these big, beautiful screens. And we just saw that Pinterest announces you can now purchase directly from pins. I think that if Instagram tomorrow releases Pinstagram or I'm sorry, uh, and says, look, curated pages, <laughs> yeah, uh, curated pages of specific topics that you can pin your images to, I think Pinterest is going to decline in value 80%. I think Pinterest product development has been almost zero the right. last 24 months and is wildly overvalued. Granted, I said that they were at $5 billion. I think you have essentially <laughs> social media is basically Facebook and the seven dwarves right now. I think you're going to see Facebook, and we said this during the break. I think Facebook's going to be the most valuable company in the world within five years. Granted, I said that five years ago. I was going to say, I'd say 10 years. It, it if might it take longer. I said it five years ago that Facebook was going to become the internet. 20% of all time online is spent on Facebook. If it goes to 51, then the internet's just the underlying technology and Facebook is the internet. Right. But when you look at two and a half billion people, meaningful relationships, dominating the funnel up and down, I just think they're an unbelievable juggernaut and they're going to start to take share from Google and every other social media platform, including Twitter. See, I, it, that's really fascinating. Some of their advertising stuff it's going to be interesting to see how they integrate it because they have the ability to do wondrous things. Yeah. They're A-B testing, and, yeah. and I don't know if we'll get to that. We'll, we'll circle back later about that. But some of the things I've been seeing that they do and hearing about that they do are astonishing. And I don't know how other marketers slash advertisers are going to be able to match the infrastructure because they have more. We You, you alluded to this earlier. Mm -hmm. They have so much information about you, who you are, what you do. You know, I love the story, and this is where maybe there's some competition with Facebook. I love the story about Target mm -hmm. marketing to the pregnant, the pregnant daughter, woman, yeah. and dad goes into the store and yells at the manager, and how dare you, you know, th yeah. throws the paper, how dare you do this, right. and then a month later shows up, 
to apologize, hey, right. you guys were right, right. Uh, based on what her purchase history is through her credit card. They can track her. Yeah. If other retailers can do that, do they stand a chance against Facebook or is it going to be Facebook and everybody else? So I, I think it's, I think it's apples and oranges. I don't think Facebook's in the retail business. As a matter of fact, social commerce has been one of the biggest head fakes in business the last five years. There were what, what do you mean by that? Well, a bunch of retailers in 2012, about 17 retailers that we track opened stores on Facebook. Uh-huh. You could buy stuff. Really? By, 2000, by 2013, there were three. Social. Done. When you're in a bar, you don't want to buy. When you're looking, you're talking to your friends, you don't want to buy. But it doesn't matter. It, 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 even, if, even if these aren't platforms for retail, Advertising is a huge market, and Facebook is going to start to take share and market cap from every other media vehicle in the world. They're going to take it from ESPN. They're going to take it from WPP. They're going to take it from Pinterest. It, it, this is back to the notion of a winner-take-all economy, but you have top of the funnel with Instagram, which you could argue is already the most powerful platform in the world if you look at the community mm-hmm. size times the level of engagement that it inspires. Top of the funnel, brand-based, image-based awareness – then with Facebook, you have unbelievable targeting in the mid-funnel at scale. And then at the bottom, you have WhatsApp, which, by the way, is strong in every market that Facebook wasn't strong in. Right. It was very, very um, complimentary acquisition. They're jumping the silos. They're starting to figure out what images you're looking at on Instagram and then and then target you on Facebook with more relevant ads. And at some point, they're going to be able to target you locally based on where you are on WhatsApp. We have never seen We have never seen anything like this, Barry. This is this is the most successful product in the history of mankind. It's the scene Nothing from comes close. it's the scene from Minority Report. Yeah, where where Tom Cruise walks into the store. They know who he is. They know what he's shopped. It, the ads pop up yeah. specifically for him. Yeah, Facebook is approaching that one. And look how smart they've been. Remember all the grief that everybody gave Mark Zuckerberg for buying Instagram, 19 people for a billion bucks. Now they say it's worth 20 to $40 billion. Fantastic acquisition. M- meanwhile, Yahoo goes and buys Tumblr for $1.1 billion and they never mention it in earnings calls again, right? Best acquisition in tech the last five years, Instagram. Worst acquisition in tech the last five years, uh, Tumblr. It, it, and then WhatsApp, perfectly complimentary. Every market they weren't strong in. This has been... This has been the most nimble company in the world. Zero zero revenues from mobile 30 months ago. Now two-thirds of their revenue when That's they started going shift. to mobile. That's the huge shift. Once they cracked mobile, because I was skeptical about Facebook's valuation yeah. pre-mobile, I, I did a reversal once they basically said, hey, here's how much we're seeing. And, uh, and, and that was a huge, huge game change for them. Unbelievably nimble. Who's made better acquisitions than Facebook? Who's been able to retain talent better? They've also got the benefit of being seen as benign, so regulators aren't yet coming after them. Uh, yeah, I think they're going to be the most, uh, uh, most valuable company in the world. That, that's, that's incredible. That's a, uh, we'll see if they can actually bypass Apple, and, and which raises the question, how dependent is Apple on their next hit? I know that we've had a long run of really successful products. Are they a hit-driven company, or- can they afford the watch, the iWatch, to be a little, uh, maybe not a, a, an iPhone or even an iPod for that matter? Yeah, I, I think they have their next hit product, and I don't think it's the watch. I think it's the iPhone 6. Oh, really? I, I don't know if you're an iPhone guy, but I, which one do you have? I got the 6. Oh, you got the 6. My wife has the big one. Yeah, I have the big I, one, the 6 the, Plus. The big one is too big to put yeah. in my pocket. Yeah. She lo- Now, by the way, not a tech person, like getting her to return- voicemails like she yeah. now texts she she so totally loves this phone it's easy to read it does everything it's the pictures so she teaches a photography class the pictures that you do on that phone are just yeah. just astonishing 
Yeah. It, 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 does the Apple Watch, is the Apple Watch successful? I think it is, but quite frankly, I don't think it matters. I think right. the iPhone 6 is such an incredible product. And by the way, who loses? Samsung. Oh my gosh, it's a Samsung killer. Yeah. And you want to talk about uh, Android. Uh, there were more Apple Watches sold on the first day of the Apple Watch than every Android device combined for the previous year. Really? Oh my gosh. That's Very, unbelievable. You realize the Apple store on Fifth Avenue with the one below the General Motors building yep. is going to do more sales in a year just that store than the entire wearables market. By the way, everybody thinks that the Apple Watch is evidence that the wearables market is thriving. The wearables market is dead. It except, is dead. Except for Except that. for the Apple Watch. And the Apple Watch isn't a wearable. It's a second screen for your phone that's going to take all the discretionary income out of the wearables market. Fitbit, Jawbone, never going public. No way. The wearables market is done. Ask anytime you're with 100 people or more in an audience, how many people have bought a wearable? They all raise their hand. How many people are wearing a wearable? You got, uh, what are you wearing? Which one do you Fitbit. have? Oh, you like Flex. Fitbit. Do you like it? Um, It's okay. I, I don't love how poorly it syncs with the phone. Sometimes yeah. it does. Sometimes it doesn't. The battery lasts three days. I don't like the way this closes. If I have a better, if I, I have zero brand loyalty. I've been using it because- yeah. Truth be told, I'm at 9,000 steps. Hey, I'm going to make it to 10. Yeah. And there are days when I'm doing 15 and 18. And, you know, the only reason I'm not 300 pounds is because I'm so, I'm running around constantly walking yeah, around you're the city. Active. Right. If it wasn't for that, I'd be a Macy's float um, for, for Thanksgiving. <laughs> but, um, but, but I will tell you the fascinating thing about Apple and the phones yeah. is, you know, you see the Android market share and how much Samsung is. Apple is capturing about 90% of the profits in the phone space. For the first time in the history of South Korea, or as long as there's been mobile phones, you're going to have a mobile phone from a non-domestic carrier have the number one market share, and that's the iPhone. Never happened in China, before. Never happened before. It's always been Samsung, which, by the way, is a great company, and you can't count them out. I just think they're... I mean, their appliances, they do an amazing job. You are but, so diplomatic. Oh, I work with all these guys. Anyway, so, <laughs> uh, they, but you look at the iPhone, there's going to be more iPhones sold in China this year yeah. than in the US. And then just coming up in the elevator here, I realize the upgrade cycle has such dramatic potential because everyone has an iPhone, but they still have the fives. So, I, uh, two things the iPhone, the successful migration to a luxury brand. Apple's going to be a trillion dollar market cap company. It, it, you have never, do you realize that one of the core, the core pieces of IP in the world of academia, academia is Prahala out of Chicago, this notion of core competence. Mm -hmm. Find one thing you're really good at, then do everything at industry standard. That's how the majority of great companies operate it. Right. What is Apple's core competence? They're the best retailer in the world. They're the best retailer in the world. The Fifth Avenue store, the numbers on a square foot basis, there's nothing even close to it. They're number one in retail in the world on a per square foot basis. It's they amazing. They $5,000 per square foot. The number two is Tiffany's, Tiffany at 3000 yeah. There's a new number two, Warby Parker, at about 3500 if granted, small base, but they're- What the, do they sell? The glasses. Barbie oh, Parker. Oh, sure, sure. But anyways, and then design. Mm -hmm. Who's a better, you know, hardware? I mean, this is a company with five or six core competences. It's blown out the traditional notions of a go-to-market strategy around business that we've ever had. We've never seen a company like this. Google has one public company. Search, search, and search, right? Nothing else could be taken public at Google. You probably have four to six- $50 billion-plus companies within Apple that are distinct of each other. You know, iTunes could go public. The hardware company could go public. The iPhone. It, 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 you have so many companies operating on 12 cylinders in that company. We've never seen anything like that. It's amazing. So so let's. I, there was a question I had for you about Apple earlier. How do you, how do you compare Tim Cook 
to Steve Jobs. How good is Tim Cook? He may be one of the most underrated CEOs in the country. I think he's I think he's fantastic. And you've run a company, I've run a company. You just see how damn hard it is to create value and how and and what both Steve Jobs, who has deservedly, you know, kind of attained icon status, Tim Cook, it, oh my God, what unbelievably big shoes to fill, and he slipped right into them. Uh, so every year, Warren Buffett auctions off a lunch. It goes for three or four million dollars. Crazy. Tim Cook does one each year, and I was like, I would love to do that. Yeah. I can't. I can't piss away two million dollars on a lunch. You need that Ferrari, right? It's, you still got that Ferrari. <laughs> it's two hundred thousand dollars. You can have lunch with Tim Cook. What a deal! To raise money for charity for uh, two hundred thousand. Uh, uh, How is that pot talk? That's what I mean by crazy, that's yeah. the most underrated yeah. CEO Good. running the biggest company in the world. How is that not a million dollar lunch? Crazy! I'm gonna have lunch twice with him. Crazy! <laughs> Great value. That, that's exactly right. Um, so we talked about design, design and brand with Apple. So what else do they need to do to move the needle? Or is their installed platform, is their installed base so big that just that that upgrade cycle is enough to keep them going for a few years until the next hit comes along? My sense is between the the watch, which is really a second screen for the phone, and anything you could do with the phone, whether it be you know continuing to encroach on media. They announced their streaming service today. We'll see what happens with that. But there's so much opportunity. There are there, every every one of these companies is moving towards one place. They all want to be a global operating system hub. I call it Gosh. They all want to control more time of your screen time, of your eyeballs and your mm-hmm. attention than any other firm. And Apple is in probably the best position to do that among the people that matter most, and that's effectively higher income households. If you did a heat map of the iOS mobile system, it's basically a wealth map. If you're in uh-huh. Manhattan, you own uh, you own an iPhone if and an iPad and an iPad. If you're in on the island in some of the lower income areas, you're out in Jersey in some of the low income areas, you're Android and your PC. So uh, Apple has effectively said, and Apple's tapping into this, uh, they're getting in front of this wave when we talk about, unfortunately, the wealthier aggregating more and more income. Mm-hmm. You know, Apple only has, what, a, a 15 or 20% market share, but they have 80% share of mobile commerce because only wealthy people right now are shopping on their mobile phones. Right. Wealthy people have iPhones. So who owns an iPhone? Everyone that matters. And when I say everyone that matters, I mean everyone that has a lot of disposable income and is comfortable buying online and comfortable buying high margin products online. So I don't think I think all they need to do is keep improving the ecosystem for the iPhone and they're gonna add hundreds of billions of dollars to market cap. That, that's amazing. You know, in one of your videos you show the heat map of operating system and yeah. exactly what you described. So you could see in Manhattan proper and Park Slope and, and Morristown and parts of Nassau County, it's iPhone. And all in the lower or, or even middle income spaces, it was um, uh, the Android system. Yeah. You also mentioned the purple areas that are Jurassic Park. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah, we affectionately call Midtown, uh, which is purple, lights up purple Jurassic Park while, with where all the dinosaurs with their blackberries are. And I don't know about you, but I miss my blackberry. I absolutely salivate I when I it. see those kids. You didn't love the blackberry? Hated oh, it. God, hated it. And I'll it. tell you why. Because my first, the iPhone comes out, and it was AT&T only. And I went and I got the iPhone. Yeah. And the fir- iPhone 1 was this beautiful, useless glass brick. It yeah. was just, it was great unless you wanted to make a phone call. Yeah. And back then, supposedly AT&T is much better today, but back then it was utterly worthless in this part of area, a part of 
you know, New York and Nassau County, you, you couldn't make a call. Uh, within New York State allows you 30 days to return a cellular contract. So you do or you don't miss your BlackBerry? So so the iPhone went back and yeah. I swapped it for a BlackBerry. Yeah, I did the same and thing. And for two or three years, yeah. I used the BlackBerry yeah. and I had the worst. I'm a Mac guy since my classic yeah. in 1988. Yeah, me too. So I've been, I've been a fanboy for a long time and I had the worst iPhone lust, but it, I, it was unusable for me. And I the the whatchamacallit, um, the the basic concept of, gee, I really want this iPhone. If only it would work for me, was really really you know frustrating. And then when finally it showed up on Verizon, that was it. It was get rid of the BlackBerry. Uh, every time I used the BlackBerry, I was just reminded that it wasn't an iPhone. Yeah. It was very, very frustrating. Yeah, it's 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 been, I, I, I'm still I'm still envious of people who have their BlackBerry. I miss the tactile keys. But talk about, what's interesting is basically, you know, in a 2% global growth economy, when a company's increasing market cap the way Apple is increasing market cap, the question is, well, who's on the losing end of that? And we know they basically sucked all the, all the all all the life and the blood out of RIM. They're doing the same thing to HP. They're about to do the same thing to Samsung. The question is who's next. I think Apple is going to start to suck market cap out of the LVMH and Carings of the world. Really? Yeah, in the J. Cruz of the world, because there's only so much disposable income in the ecosystem to go to products that cost between three hundred and a thousand dollars. And teen retailers who've been wrecked the last five years from a stock right. market perspective, staring at the navel, is it a product problem? Is it a brand problem? Is it a brand problem? It's a product problem? It's neither. It's an Apple problem. And that is kids are now expressing their identity through their phone, specifically their Apple phone, specifically their iPhone, versus a hoodie. The hoodie, the, so the Abercrombies of the world are no longer it. So let me show you why I don't really care about the BlackBerry anymore. So the the speech-to-text feature, that? which was yeah. awful in the first year, yeah, and then was pretty good in the second year, take a read of what I just did. It's picture-perfect, it's yeah. letter-perfect. I hardly type anymore. You do the and, voice. Unless I'm on a subway. So it requires connectivity because it's basically yeah. checking. It, it takes what I say, converts it to a, a, a formula, to math, essentially. Yeah. Sends it up to the cloud, brings it back down, compares it against a bajillion versions of this, finds out exactly what I'm saying. And the, the quality is, it's so much better um, than it was. It's pretty usable. Yeah. Typing on glass, not my favorite thing it's in the tough, world. It's tough, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, I will say that the Android, this thing where you can yeah, just big. sort of drag your fingers around, I think is superior than the individual. But the the text dictation is now so accurate. Yeah. The only problem is it's a different part of your brain to speak than to write. I yeah. find what I write is much better than what I say it's because it's a it? different lobe. Yeah, that's well. Look at the stories of the different Wernex area, Broca's area, the different aphasias. Yeah, people who lose the ability to speak but can sing or can't read but can write. They just yeah. can't read back what they wrote. Yeah, that sort of stuff is really fascinating to me. And look, when I wrote my first book, I thought oh, I'll just dictate it. It'll take no time at all. And suddenly I discover, oh no, that's a very different part of. Uh, that's a very brain. different part of the brain, and it doesn't work nearly as well. If I write something out and then integrate it into my speaking process, it sounds much better yeah. than when I'm just 
doing this sort of well, what is that about. quote if i'd had more time i would have written you a short. shorter letter yeah, absolutely. that's the thing about writing i do think you try harder and you're more thoughtful about what you're actually communicating so we never got to talk about the fifth horseman let's let's talk about that a little bit so what we attempted to do was look at what are the common, the underpinnings of the four horsemen that's enabled them to build these multi-hundred billion dollar market cap companies. And we found several things. One, a truly differentiated product. I mean, something that's surrounded by IP that you couldn't replicate easily. You couldn't replicate Google search engine easily. You cannot replicate the phone, iPhone easily. You can't replicate Facebook's um, primary platform easily. I mean, these are protected, really unbelievably differentiated products. Then visionary capital, and that is someone with a big vision. Jeff Bezos has said, we're going to be the world's biggest retailer, and then some progress against that vision that allows them to access capital at such a low cost that they can launch a phone, spend a couple billion bucks on it, have it be a dud, and it doesn't really matter. They have so much capital to go play in traffic and innovate. I think control of the end user experience vertical, more than 50% of luxury products are now sold through controlled channels. Your ability to control the end use product and have your brand be in front of the consumer is really powerful. Vanity, uh, a self-expressive benefit of brand that people want to associate with. So there's all these different factors. Maternal, the, the companies that have added the most market cap treat their employees really well. They're great places to work. So if you took all those things and applied them to a bunch of great companies, who comes up as potentially could be the next big, big thing. And some of the companies we came up with that have some potential, we talked about a couple of them. Nike uh, has a lot of potential. Uh, I think Alibaba, when you look at 60% of all packages being shipped through China are coming from Alibaba. When you look at the product roadmap, you have a company that you know is is the kind of the best digital company in the fastest growing market in the world. That's a pretty good combination. <laughs> a company that most people might not think of as potentially being in that same breath, but I think is an amazing company, is Starbucks. What are the 20-something thousand stores now almost? Two stores opened every day for the last 27 years. That's unbelievable. Also, I would argue a technology company that serves hot beverages. Uh, the largest mobile payments company in the world. I was about to say. You, uh, have, the, you have the Starbucks app? One in five. Love it. One in five dollars go through the mobile app now. That, that's unbelievable. More and, successful and it's, it's, than- I've been using it for God knows how long. It, it's flawless, more assuming successful, I remember my password. More than any other company in the world right now. And also, uh, incredibly maternal. They spend more money on employee benefits than they spend on coffee beans. Healthcare, college, God uh, knows what fantastic. else. And $9.23 average order value, if they can figure out a way to get into food or into other things and get to 20 or 30 bucks you're, uh, per transaction, you're probably looking at a company that's three to $500 billion market cap. Wow. Starbucks really? is an unbelievable company that has had, in, in my opinion, just made we, we I oftentimes sit with companies and say, well, we're not a tech company. We're an apparel. We're never going to be a tech company. I'm saying, if Starbucks can be a tech company or can use technology to drive tens of billions of dollars in market capitalization, what's your excuse? No one would say, oh, Starbucks is a tech company. Yeah, they are. That's how they've had it. Tens of billions of dollars in market cap. The number one company or the company based on what I'll call the subjective algorithm we've applied against it. In my view, if I was to say, okay, what company now is trading at less than $100 billion but could be worth three to $500 billion in five to 10 years, I would pick Uber. Uh-huh. I think it's become the vascular system for business. We've never seen anything like that. It's it's adopted this strategy. When you look at the other things companies have had in common that have added hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap the last few years, it's their parasites, and that is they're, they're feeding off another organism. Right. Someone else is creating the content. You create the content for Facebook. We create the content for Google. Uber is basically FedEx, UPS, without unions, without CapEx, they buy their own car right. without a uniform, without the right to strike, 
flexible labor, meaning cheap labor. It's sort of a, uh, it's a Ayn Rand Darwinian dream from a shareholder standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, and they could potentially get into all sorts of businesses. I don't think Uber is a private drive, a private car company. I think Uber is effectively a last mile solution for millions of businesses that all are struggling with last mile. That's fascinating. Where do you put Netflix into that ecosystem? Unbelievable company. I mean, but it's already it's already almost there, right? It, what'll be interesting is, uh, is it's a great lesson, and it's something that in my industry we failed to learn. That if you want to understand how likely you are to be disrupted, it's pretty easy. You just look at what is our prices relative to inflation. You know, and if mm -hmm. our prices have gone up way more in inflation, we, and there's no underlying innovation, cable. Massive price increases, no innovation. Everybody gets into it. Netflix, uh, my sense is, uh, could be one of those companies. The thing that's scary about Netflix is the dumb pipe of cable providers. Mm -hmm. They still have a lot of power, and so even and, with net neutrality, more or less passing, but and the new FCC rules. But they still own the pipe. Yeah, they still own the pipe, right? So, it's, they can raise prices. I, I, I sure. don't. So I wonder if Netflix. Netflix, in my opinion, has one big hurdle that the other guys, the four horsemen don't have, and that is they are not totally vertical. They don't control their distribution. They still have to go through someone else's pipe. By the way, how familiar are you with the history of, of the Apple stores since you're talking about controlling the vertical? You, ju you just made me think of something from back in the 1990s when it looked like Apple wasn't going to survive. Are you are you plugged into the Best Buy Apple story? I'm not. Say so, more. So the first Apple stores yep. were this ghetto in the corner of the PC section of Best Buy. Oh yeah. Because um Apple had a real hard time getting people to pay more money for computers that the staff wasn't really all that familiar with. Yeah. Everybody knew how to sell a Windows machine. Everybody knew how to sell sell a Compaq or an HP. And so Apple cut a deal with Best Buy. They set up these little, I called them the Apple ghetto, the Mac ghetto. Yeah. And so it was four or five machines, some of which worked, some of which were hooked up improperly. They were dusty. It was just ignored. And my thesis is that Steve Jobs walked into one of these places yeah. and said, you know what? I'm, I'm making done. a gesture that we can't discuss yeah. here yeah. and yeah. said, I'm going to do it myself. And uh, I'm tired of being dependent on these you know retail bums who don't want to sell my product. But what you're describing is the evolution of luxury in general, because effectively you had Rolex or you had Vuitton as a better example, Vuitton or Gucci going into a Bullock's or a Macy's and saying, you know, they do a good job but not a great job, so I'm going to start opening my own stores. And so, now, so when did the Coach stores open up? When did the Louis Vuitton stores open up? Well, Coach has been has had more control of their distribution, although sort of the dirty secret of Coach is that the majority of the retail sales come through their outlets. And the majority of their profits, but and, and their outlets isn't the same stuff that's in the. the no, I believe stores. it's custom product at a lower price point, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of brands that do that. It's yeah. just trying to manage that balance. But with luxury, what you have last year is for the first time more luxury goods are controlled are sold through controlled vertical channels. If the way to summarize it is, a brand building has moved from broadcast, in other words, pre-purchase mm -hmm. advertising, print trade shows, it's moved from there in terms of effectiveness to the store. And the guy that discovered that and created tens of billions of dollars in value for shareholders is Mickey Drexler at Lock the Gap. Absolutely, a really largest, largest apparel company in the world. Nineteen ninety-seven Levi Strauss and Company at seven billion. Basic model was best advertising in the world. Then stuff Army Navy stores with pile highs of five hundred ones. Right, and 
they had the best ads in the world, and Mickey Drexler said, we can't afford to go toe-to-toe, so we're going to put all of that money and branding into the store, bleach bond wood, more intelligent, attractive sales associates, bigger bigger dressing rooms, scented stores, better real estate. The branding, he said, is moving to the store. Levi Strauss and company exploded from $7 billion to $4 billion in that time period. <laughs> the gap went from something like $2 billion to $8 billion. It, it's a huge shift we don't give enough credit to him for, but branding has moved from pre-purchase into the store. Starbucks took advantage of that, mm-hmm. and luxury has seen that. You see Richemont making these staggering investments in stores. So high-end distribution, the Achilles heel for Nike becoming a, uh, one of the four, four horsemen, they have to control more of their distribution. They have a decent amount of stores, but it seems like there's one store per city. Pimple on there's the There's one elephant. in Seattle. There's one in, in San Francisco. I think there's. I know there's one here. Every now and then we see one pop up, but it's not like a giant chain. Yeah, it's. It, I believe they only control about ten to fifteen percent of their distribution. So it's. Um, they're going. If you, the one thing you see in common among these four horsemen is that they control the end experience, whether it's Google, Apple. Facebook and Amazon, they have vertical control, and that's that's because that, in my view, that's a prerequisite to become quote unquote part of the trillion dollar possible club. Hmm, that's quite fascinating. All right, I know I only have you for so many minutes left, so let me get right to my favorite three questions or four questions sure. that I ask all my guests, and we'll get you out of here uh, at a reasonable time. First, we have yet to you talked about some of your mentors. We have not talked about any of your favorite books. Yep. What what sort of books do you really uh, do you really enjoy? God, I'm just I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this. I don't read as much as, as as I would like or as I should as an academic because I'm reading all day. But I'm reading blogs like yours and other people's. Um, some of the books that have had yeah yeah the basics like The Alchemist had an impact on me. I love it. I, now I'm sounding like I'm 70 or 80, but I love reading books about military history. I find them fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, Guns of the Early Light or Herman Wook's The Winds of War. And then in terms of business, my father introduced me to Peter Drucker at a young age. Oh, sure. Observations of a Bystander. Um, I find that stuff uh, uh, really interesting. But, still timely, still relevant today? Oh, gosh, I think so. I think he's the father of modern management, and his stuff is more relevant than it is, than it is today. And I also love uh, some of the stuff from uh, uh, John Irving. You know, uh, Oh, really? World According to Garb. I love and, that uh, stuff. I think it's, think it's just a lot of fun and just so strange. It's kind of I find it really relaxing. That's the right word. Um, so second, next question so you deal with a lot of millennials. You deal yep. with a lot of people at the start of their career. Yep. What sort of advice do you give to somebody starting out in your space today? Find find a great platform. Find a place you're going to learn. And it's not aspirational, but find something you're good at and work really, really hard at it. Um, and um, if you don't find yourself on a path, uh, you're not. if you're not fortunate enough to find yourself on a path towards something you love, or you like, people say find something you love. Find something you like, I was the way I would say it, because if you like it, you're going to be good at it. Um, think about graduate school. For all, the, for all the noise about and all the publicity about people dropping out of college, I still think uh, school is a good plan B. The Peter Thiel thing, you're not a fan? Oh, I think that is so frightening and so scary. I, I just, uh, you know, I'd love to pick 10 kids at great public universities to match up against the 10 he. Look, if you're oh, Steve Jobs, great idea. if you're that. Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, granted they're exceptional, and and God love you if you're one of those one of those rare people that can you know take a calligraphy class and then drop out and start the start the Mac. <laughs> but for the rest of us, you know, college is a pretty good plan B. So, uh, as we've seen in this recovery, to say the least, get get a great find a great platform. F- find something you think you like or you're good at. Work your ass off, and if it's not working out in your mid twenties. 
think about graduate school and you know good karma the, the 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 really successful people what you find in the trade is they do spend a lot of time thinking about how can i help other people because it will come full circle people do remember that um what have you seen that have changed in your industry in branding and marketing what are the big shifts over the past decade oh gosh the, i don't want to say the death of creativity but it's definitely revenge of the pocket pen protectors and we've talked about don draper's dad uh, creativity is not a, not a commodity but you've had You've had, it's more important to understand how to operate Salesforce in a database and CRM than to necessarily come up with the right copy or the most beautiful, inspiring creative ad. So it's moving more, much more towards zeros and ones than it is from tech. It's the guys who are cool and wear black are making less money. And it's, it's, it's the math and the chess club. And now at the same time, we have to produce people who understand, have the maturity and management skills and the EQ and played with the right toys to manage those people. And it's hard to find them in the same body, but it's definitely headed towards technology in the world of marketing and branding. We talked about branding's moved from pre-purchase to purchase. Now it's moving to post-purchase, CRM, contextual retargeting, taking behavioral data. Um, but it definitely seems like tech is just eating eating the world. So I'm not a technologist, but I like to think I know enough about it to be dangerous and I try and stay on top of stuff. So if you're, you know, if you're starting your career or guys like us, right, who are trying to stay relevant, you got to be on Facebook. You got to figure it out. You got to go on Pinterest and start pinning stuff. So you at least get it or at least get it enough to hate it. Right. (laughs) And because most people just, they dismiss it. And when they dismiss, when they're dismissive of something or when guys our age are dismissive of stuff, it's basically their way of saying, I don't get it and scares the hell out of the, me. The comment I always get is like, I don't understand. What do you do with Twitter? And my answer is always, hey, here's, here's what you do. Find 500 of the smartest people yeah, in the world and, in areas yeah. that you're really interested in. I don't care if it's beer, burgers, and baseball, but follow those people and you will know more about stuff that you like and have access to more interesting stuff it's like hiring a full-time Menza research team. Yeah. What could be bad about that? And the, the final question, my final question I ask all my guests, what do you know about your field that you wish today, that you wish you knew when you were starting out? What do I know about my field today that I wish to know when I started out? Um, I would have focused more on how to learn how to build stuff. I would have learned how to code. I would have learned more about industrial engineering and design. I think the world, the future belongs to the builders, not the branders. The people who know how to actually make stuff. That can be making a website. Mm -hmm. That can be figuring out how to edit a radio show. But the people who build things, as opposed to my focus was always on the intangible associations and creating the ethereum. I wish I'd learned more about how to build things. So we've been speaking with Scott Galloway, professor at NYU Stern and founder of L2 Digital. Um, let's once again tell people where they can find you on Twitter. Prof Galloway. Prof Galloway. And your website? L2Inc.com. L2Inc.com. Scott, thank you so much thank for, you, for hanging around for Fan so long. Fan of the long. show. Thanks for having Th- me. This was, this was really fascinating. I think people are really going to enjoy this. If you enjoyed this conversation, and I can't imagine anybody did not, look an inch up or, or down on iTunes, and you'll see the other 47 or so uh, such Um, conversations. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com and on Twitter. Follow me at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.